If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open it to John chapter 15. Okay, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We've been in John for for a little over a year. And today we're coming to a place that's in the middle of uh, Jesus' farewell discourse. What that means is that he's leaving very soon. He's going to the cross. He's eventually going to be ascended to, to the heavens. And so he is departing. Quite literally, he is leaving. And so he is telling his disciples just some instructions and some encouragements because they're in a difficult phase of life right now. One of the things that we're going to look at today and, and probably the central focus is what Jesus' intent here is to help them to understand and to know how to respond to persecution, okay? Because that's right around the corner. He's going to tell them how to understand and how to respond to persecution. Guys, Christians are being persecuted in this world, all right? We're no, we're no exemption to that. We are being persecuted in this world. It's in a different light than some others, but per- Christians are being persecuted all over the world. In fact, this is the most uh, persecution that the Christian faith has ever experienced in all of world history. Now listen, go back a few years in history, uh, several years in history, and Christians were being murdered in the Roman Colosseum, dragged out of their homes. And, don't get me wrong, there have been major persecutions going on in historical times. But today, y'all, today, Christians are undergoing the worst persecution in all of human history. Here's some figures for you that I pulled from one uh, study group, research group. The annual number of Christians killed as a direct result of their faith in the war was 8,000. 111 countries either restrict or are hostile toward Christianity. Over 100 million Christians around the globe are persecuted for their faith. In North Korea alone, there's something estimated between 50 and 70,000 Christians that are in detention camps as we speak. Christians are being persecuted. There's church bombings that happen by radical groups in the Middle East. We're no stranger to these things. Churches are being persecuted. Just because they're not happening in that way here, our brothers and sisters are suffering for the faith, and it is a glorious thing in other parts of the world. We're going to examine that persecution certainly looks different in the United States, and we'll get there, but I want to keep some perspective. Our uh, persecution in this country is very, very mild in comparison to all of human history. Very mild. It's real, but it's mild. In fact, this is the only time in all of human history, I know I keep using that phrase, but I think it's important, this is the only time in all of human history, as far as the Christian church goes, the last 2,000 years, the only time that there's ever been a civilization that was as welcoming to real, genuine, evangelical Christians than we are today. It's never happened before. So quite literally, we live in a geographical and spiritual anomaly. This is not normal. The situation that we live in is not normal that our world is so welcoming to the people of our faith. And you may be thinking, it doesn't feel very welcoming. And you're right, okay? There's real persecution. But the level, that we, the level of persecution that we have today is so mild in comparison to what it is in some parts of the world. It's just... Let's try this again. So two things that we're going to be responding to today is why does the world hate Christians and how are we called to respond to such hatred, okay? So let's look at the Bible. John chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 17 
all the way to chapter 16, verse 4. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Hopefully you have a copy of God's Word because that's going to be the where we're going to be today, okay? John 15, verses 17 through chapter 16, verse 4. This is what God's Word says. These things I've commanded you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness about me. Because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 1. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Those are some historical things that are very important in order to comprehend what's going on in this passage. Okay, listen. I know that the crucifixion won't happen for several more chapters, but chronologically speaking, Jesus, when he is saying these things, is less than 24 hours from the time that he will be arrested and crucified. And so he is instructing and encouraging his disciples that soon will be without their Savior. Okay, He is going to be deceased, at least for a time. And so he's instructing them on what to do. How are we supposed to respond to this? Last week, as Miss Leanne mentioned a moment ago, we were in chapter 15 of John, and we looked at a very famous passage. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I also in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the word there was that Jesus is telling his disciples that you need to be tethered to me. You have to be linked to me in everything. Abide in me, he said, as I also have abided or made my abode with you. He tells them ways that you will see this in action. You will see obedience looking like love. Love resulting in obedience. You will see prayer in line with the desires of Christ. You will see a life of full joy. You will see sacrificial love. And those things will be evidences that you are abiding in me. Now today, what we're going to see is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, He Himself, is who is empowering such love in action. But you, Christians, You disciples, Jesus is saying, you will not be met with love. That's not going to be the response that you're given. You won't be met with love. And so why is the Spirit so important? Because He empowers not just love in action, but He empowers perseverance in the midst of hate. Perseverance in the midst of hate, which is why verse 17 looks the way that it does. 
These things I've commanded you so that you will love one another, which is immediately contrasted, not with love, but he turns it around and starts talking about the exact opposite, hatred. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is going to be our outline. Christ's two sovereign responses to the world's hatred. Christ's two sovereign responses to the world's hatred. Now listen, I use those words very intentionally, okay? Christ's two sovereign responses to the world's hatred. Number one is understand why the world hates Christians. Understand why the world hates Christians. And you may be thinking, I don't know, that's a pretty harsh term. Hates, that's Jesus' word. Detests is what that word means. In exact opposition toward. So let's see why he says this. Jesus gives full disclosure. The world will despise you. But he also says that this is not such a bad thing. Okay? It's it's very strange. He says this is not such a bad thing because this is going to serve to affirm that you're in fact abiding in Christ. If the world hates you, it's a terrible thing. But it serves to affirm that you are in me. Let's look at it. Verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the first question, why does the world hate Christians? Let's begin to answer that question. First of all, we need to understand that word world. Now, when you think of the world, I think of all the people in the world. But specifically, Jesus is talking a little bit more about that. First of all, this term world is cosmos. It means all of things. But he's specifically talking about people. Now, it's repeated five times in this passage. The reason I say that is because he's emphasizing it. The world is not just a big rock. It's not just a planet. He is contrasting the world with you, disciples, okay? If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. He's contrasting these two things. So what is the world and who does he mean by this? Here's what he means. You are disciples. The world are people that are not followers of Jesus. Specifically, they are people that are still in direct rebellion against Jesus, against God. So when you read the word world, the people that he has in mind isn't all people in the world. It's the people in the world that he has not chosen out of the world. It's people that live in direct rebellion against God. Enemies, those at enmity with God, hate Less than 24 hours after this passage, Jesus was arrested, tried for crimes he did not commit. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was whipped. Then he was executed as a criminal. While he was on the cross, or before that, he was dressed up as a mock king with a crown made of thorns. He was hanged on a cross while being verbally assaulted, and he was physically impaled by a spear. Was Jesus hated? You better believe it. The world hated Jesus like antibodies fighting off a virus that doesn't belong. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, did not belong in this world because the world is fallen, broken, sinful, and then suddenly a virus, a good virus, steps into that world and that virus does not belong to this world. And so the world responds negatively against him and is combative and hatred toward him. The world are people that are in direct rebellion against their creator. And look at verse 19. He says, if you're of the world, 
The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. I chose you out of. What that means is that you were once the people of the world, right? You were also in rebellion against God, but solely because of the grace and love of Jesus, you too have been brought from enmity, in, enmity, uh, enmity and an enemy of God to being a friend with God. In other words, what he's saying is that you have a new natural your loyalty is to a new group. You're no longer loyal to yourself or to others or to this world. You are loyal to Christ. And the purpose of your salvation is to live for your new master. So what does that look like? What does it look like that the world hates people that are of the faith? I'm going to give you a few examples of that. You may be thinking, hates? I don't know. That's a harsh term. The world really hates Christians, well, let's think about it, okay? Vice President Mike Pence has a policy that he never wants to be alone without accountability with a woman that is not his wife, which, in my opinion, as a believer, I think it's a really good policy. It's a really good policy. But was he met with support from the world? No. He was slandered, wasn't he? He was accused, called a sexist, he was slandered, called a sexist who only sees women as sex objects. That seems ironic, doesn't it? Because the very reason that he was doing that is to be above reproach. But that's what the world thought about that. You go look on Facebook and Twitter and see what people thought about that. The people that are of the world did not like that idea. There's a show that was very, very popular uh, called Game of Thrones. And if you watch that show, that's, that's on you, okay? That's up to you. I did not choose to watch that show despite it basically checking every single box I'm a sci-fi guy. I like uh, really good stories. I like really good acting. I'm totally cool with all of those things. But that show was filled with nudity. All right? To me, that was a deal breaker. That was, that was a reason not to watch the show. What the world says to that, well, listen, the nudity just, it pushes the story. It's in the books, and so you have to put it in the story. And so it pushes the story. It's not meant to arouse. It's meant to push the story along. That's absurd. That's insane. The world is like, no, it's cool. But listen, you have a new master. And so you see the world through a different lens. A song comes on the radio sometimes, and I'll begin singing it along. And then suddenly it'll hit me, the words that I'm actually saying that I've let fill my brain. Do you guys ever have that feeling happen? I'll be singing a song or rapping a song. What? That's a joke. I'm not a good... Anyway. So a song comes on the radio, and I'll start reciting the words in my mind or out loud. And I'm thinking to myself, what? How do I know this song? How have I let these words fill my brain? Guys, we serve a new master. You have a changed identity. And so it's not okay to say those things are okay. And the world says, well, it's just music. You know, it's just, I like the beat and, you know, it doesn't really influence me. Music doesn't really influence me. Guys, the world would look at those things and say they're no big deal. You're overreacting. But people, listen, if you fit in the world perfectly, that's a problem. You fit in with the world before Jesus rescued you, but now you have a new loyalty, and this is where true joy is found. It's not enslaving. It's joyous to be liberated from being included with the world. As a result, therefore, as he says in verse 19, therefore, the world hates you. Okay, so why? Why does the world hate us? Because they hate Jesus, and now you're his. Okay? Why does the world hate you? Because the world hates Jesus, and now you belong to Jesus. Verse 20. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. This phrase that you see in verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master, was used earlier in chapter 13 to teach his disciples uh, to demonstrate humble service. Washing their feet, he's like, you're not greater than your master, so you should do what I do. Now it's used in a different situation. He's using the same term, Servant's not greater than his master, but his point here is this, that because I am mistreated, you should expect the same treatment that your master received. In other words, if they persecuted me, and many of them did, they will persecute you. And if they obeyed my teaching, and some of them did, they will obey yours also. That's what Jesus is getting at. And he's introducing that because of verses 21 through 25. Look at it. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So why do people persecute the church? Because of Jesus. Because they do not know him who sent me. That's a big accusation. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them. Now this sounds weird. Let's, let's, let's look at it together. If I had not come and spoken to them. They would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24, this is interesting. He says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, I want to take a quick side note because that probably was a little confusing. They wouldn't be guilty of sin. I thought that everybody was guilty of sin. They were, and they are. Everyone is guilty of sin. What Jesus is saying here is not that, well, if I would have never shown up and if I would have never preached or preached to these guys and if I would have never done these miracles, then they would have gone to heaven. Then why would he come? Right? Why would he have ever come to the world if he would have just not come and they would have been not guilty of sin? That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is literally that word, they would not have been guilty of sin. What it means is they would not have or possess sin. They would not possess this specific blatant rejection of Jesus. So Jesus came and he spoke. He did wonders for them. And yet they rejected, listen, the clearest revelation of God's light In favor of darkness. What he's saying is they're essentially guilty of double guilt. It will be very hard for them to be restored. And if I had not come and if they would have just uh, been oblivious, they'd still be guilty of sin. But this specific type of sin that they're guilty of, they're in a bad, bad situation. Later on in the Gospels, he says that it's comparable to being worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Deep stained guilt, deep, deep hardness of heart. And if Jesus had not come, their hearts would not be this hardened by sin. I'll finish it off and look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Okay, so why does the world hate Christians? This, this passage, verses 21 through 25, kind of answer that. Why? Because they don't know the Father. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. Why do people do evil things? Because they don't know God. That's why. Because they don't know God. Now listen, this is an unreal accusation that Jesus has just made. That the people that are about to crucify him, yes, they're Roman centurions, but the people that are going to say crucify him are not Roman centurions. They're Jewish religious elites. They're church-going people. They're good religious people, so to speak. And what he's saying here is that the religious people are 
extra lost. That's what he's saying. That they're the ones that are way, way, way far off. Because their hearts have been so hardened. Those guys that were, the way that we would understand it, raised in the church or raised in the synagogues, they know God a lot less than they think they do. They are enemies of God. Remember, these guys are raised in the synagogues, raised in the church, so to speak. These guys are the ones that say, I belong to the people of Israel. I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite of Israelites, a Jewish man. I know God. Jesus' accusation is, you hate me because you do not know him like you think you do. Why would he say that? He quotes Psalm 69, verse 4, in verse 25, when he says, they hated me without cause. That's quoting uh, Psalm 69, verse 4. We won't turn there. But what that's saying is, David, in the passage, he's a righteous sufferer who loves God, but is persecuted by God's enemies for absolutely no good reason. And so why is Jesus using this? Because Jesus is saying, they are condemned by their own Bibles. That passage is talking about me. So these religious people, they need to go understand their Bibles. These guys that are raised in the synagogues, that have heard the Bible taught countless times are in fact guilty of the ultimate rejection of God. Now listen folks, this is why I'm saying this. Because salvation is not by a bloodline or by your upbringing. It is by coming to a saving knowledge and submission to Christ as Lord and Savior. You will not go to heaven because of who your parents are. You will not go to heaven because you've never missed a church service or Sunday school gathering. That will never send you to heaven. Because Jesus is talking to guys that never missed it. And yet they missed it. Good religious people don't go to heaven. People that are blood-bought sinners that have fallen on their faces before the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are those that will be included in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is preparing his followers by saying, basically, get ready. Okay, persecution is coming. The world, those guys, they despise you. Guys, listen to me. Church, Christian, this world hates you. The world hates you because they hated Jesus. The world hates you. Here's some proof. People believe, genuinely believe, that what we're doing in this room is a bigot rally that should be outlawed. I'm not sugarcoating it. People want what we're doing to be illegal in our country because they hate you. They think that you are a bunch of bigots that hate people that don't believe what you believe. That's the truth. That's reality. They want what we're doing outlawed. People think that you hate women's rights because you want to protect the babies that are living inside of them before they're born. They think that you hate women because you believe that and they hate you for it. They want you to be forced to be okay with murdering that child. And they hate that you're standing in the way of that legislation. That's the truth, isn't it? People hate you for saying that God, that Jesus, is the only way to heaven. They hate you for that. They hate that you are so exclusivist that you're saying, no, your religion is false. They hate you for that. And they want you to be out of the picture because you are so intolerant of other religions that are false. That's reality, isn't it? They hate you for that. They want you put out of the picture. People hate that you want prayer back in schools and that you won't shut up about it. 
They hate you for that because you're part of the problem. There's nothing new under the sun. People hate you because they hated Jesus. And so you shouldn't be surprised when this country hates you. I know that's heavy, but that's reality. Because the world hated Jesus, the world will hate you. When you surrendered all, you swapped loyalties. And if you don't feel persecuted, no, I'm not saying, listen, I know we're sober-minded. Listen, I have a sister that lives in the Middle East on mission. I get that persecution looks different in different places. I totally understand that. But you will be persecuted if you are abiding in Christ. It will happen. You will Stick your neck out for Jesus at some point, whether it be at work, at school, on the internet, wherever it is, you will stick your neck out for Jesus, right? And it will be a joyous occasion. And if you feel like yourself, you know what? I don't feel persecuted in my life. Listen, when you wear the uniform of a Christian, but you go out on the field and you score points for the other team, the other team is not going to hate you for that. When you call yourself a Christian, but you don't go out there and live for Jesus, the world is not going to hate you for that because you're playing for their team. They'll only hate the ones who play for Christ. When persecution from a believer-rejecting world comes, it serves not to discourage and to make you feel abandoned and rejected by God, but to affirm and encourage the fact that you are accepted in Christ. So we're going to kind of change directions here. Okay, so we talked about why. Why does the world hate Christians? We've, we've answered that question, all right? But the, Jesus' main point here is that you don't need to be discouraged by that. Isn't that a strange thing to say? You don't need to be discouraged by that because that serves not to discourage you, but to encourage and affirm that you're in Christ and that that is your greatest possible existence. James 1, verses 2 and 3. Most of you know this verse probably. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is a natural progression into what comes next, the how. Christ's two sovereign responses to the world's hatred. Understand how to respond to such hate. Understand how to respond to such hate. It's there it's real. Why does it happen? Because they hated Jesus. And if you're abiding in Christ, they're going to hate you too. So how do we respond to that? And that's where Jesus turns next. You cannot understand or or overstate how crucial the next few days would be for the disciples' faith, right? They're going to have severe temptation to walk away from following Jesus. They're going to scatter like roaches when you turn the lights on when Jesus is arrested. That's exactly what happens. And that's exactly why Jesus says what he says is, here's the go, guys. You need to be encouraged. Stay with it. And so Jesus is going to encourage them while they're going to face severe temptation to not walk away from the faith. Look at verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, notice the capital H, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I want to pay attention to one thing. Okay, look at verse 26 at the very end. He says, who, notice the who, not which or it. The Spirit is a person. He, he proceeds from 
the Father. Now, what that doesn't mean, and I could get into the Greek syntactical language and all this stuff. I don't want to do that. Here's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the fact that the Spirit is begotten of God. He's not saying that he is from God in the sense that he is part of him. Certainly he's part of him. But what he's saying is that he is sent out by him. In other words, he is on a mission. Sent out on a mission by God. What is that mission? Jesus has said it. You will be hated. You will be tempted to cave like a lawn chair under pressure. But you have a helper for that. The main temptation of the Christian is what he says here. It is to when that pressure arises, to not testify of Christ. And that's why you need a helper. You need to wear the gospel as a banner of truth, not a mark of shame. How? How do you respond to such hate? What Jesus says is don't stop testifying about Jesus. And when I say that, sometimes they say, somebody testify and raise your hand. Woo! You know, that's, that's not what he's talking about. What Jesus is talking about testifying, it means taking the courtroom stand and being honest about who God is and what he has done in you. That's what it means to testify. It means to give an honest report of who Jesus is, not in shame, cower under the pressure. This means that whenever you're talking to your children and trying to restore them and teaching them about bad things and good things, you're not teaching them about morals. You're teaching them about sin. You're teaching them that sin is a disease that we are succumbed to, every one of us. You teach your children that there is sin and they will do sinful things, but that Jesus loves them. Don't teach your kids to do right and wrong. Teach them to honor Jesus and to hate sin. Doesn't that sound a lot better? Atheists teach their kids to do right and wrong. Teach your kids what it means to sin, fall short of the glory of God, and be loved by a Savior who gave them grace anyway. What does it mean to not stop testifying about Jesus and his work? It means to not be ashamed to talk to a co-worker about the gospel. Testify. Be honest about who God is and what he has done. It means to talk to your spouse about more than just how was work, how was your day, sweetie. Talk to your spouse about testifying of God's work in you. What a more beautiful conversation. That's what it means to testify. It means when people ask you, how's life? And they really want to know, how's life? Tell them what God is doing in your life. That is the most important thing in your life. Testify. Don't be ashamed. Don't act like it's a taboo sort of conversation. That's who you are. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, I've said these things to you. Why? To keep you from falling away. From walking away from the faith. They, that's the persecutors, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Isn't that backwards? And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Guys, then, just like now, a major issue that Jesus foresaw was that people who called themselves followers of Jesus would prove to not truly be believers. Now, he's not saying when he says walk away, that you not fall away. He's not saying lose your salvation, all right? One passage that I think is very helpful for this is 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, not, you know, that they lose their salvation. It says, they went out from us. In other words, they walked away from the faith, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Jesus is telling them that people who put them out of the synagogue will believe that they are honoring God by their actions. Guys, I want you to understand something. When Jewish people were put out of the synagogue, we have no frame of reference for how severe and how heavy of a punishment this is. So listen, all right? This is what it meant back then for a Jewish person to be put out of the synagogue. First of all, it meant that from a career standpoint, their future plans would be done. Those things would be shattered. You can forget about your career. It meant that they would not be able to marry a woman from their community. So forget that. You can't marry a girl from your community because you're an outcast. In fact, not just that, but if you have children, your children are also going to be outcasts. Your family would consider you dead. Think about that. If you get excommunicated from the synagogue, your family, literally, I'm not making this up, your family would have thrown a funeral for you where they mourn your loss. They're dead to us because they walked away from the faith. Those are the people that have been put out of the synagogues. This is a man that would be without family or country or a woman that would be without family or country. It's a fate that they would say is far worse than death for a Jew and that is living with shame of being cast out from the faith. It's heavy, right? We have no frame of reference for that. You know, when I mentioned them earlier, but I'll say their first initials instead of their name because this is being recorded, Z and G, all right? The people that I mentioned that live in the Middle East, they came here and they talked some about that, about the shame culture that they live in in the Middle East. It's very real. They are terrified of being shamed because if you're shamed, it means that you are less than nothing. It's better to die than to be shamed by your people group. And so what Jesus is warning them against is, listen, folks, if you cling to me, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. Your life will be over. And yet you will be living indeed. Do you understand that following Jesus in the first century Palestine came with a great cost? We don't know anything about that. They would be tempted to desire what is in front of their eyes over what God has put in their hearts. And who would blame them? Right? They would be tempted to say... I don't want to lose my life over this. But that was a very real temptation for them, was to be fooled by what was in front of their faces instead of what God had put in their hearts. I went to a seminary with a guy, and I won't use his name, um, but this friend of mine, he was an incredibly, incredibly nice guy. I mean, the type of guy that you meet and you're just, you fall in love with him because he's so nice and very funny. It makes you feel like you're just the most important person in the room. You know, that kind of type. And some of you guys uh, are that type of person or you know that type of person. Some of you, eh, I'm kidding. Uh, but this guy, man, he was such a delight. I, I loved him to death. He was a, he's a good guy. He was married uh, nine years. Okay, he'd been married nine years. He served in the church four children. He's also fostering a child. Um, This guy who I went to seminary with loved Jesus. Recently, he ran off with a 19-year-old 400 miles away from home. Just ran off with this girl. He he deleted his social media accounts and blocked everyone, his friends and family, on, um, on all the social media platforms, deleted their numbers, blocked their numbers, absolutely deleted himself from any accountability. Walked away from the faith. Abandoned the church. 
said that it was all hogwash and just abandoned it all. All because he found something that stirred his affections more than Jesus. So it's a really warning, right? He's a seminary student. I mean, he was going to be a pastor. He loved the Lord. And yet, he loved what was in front of his face more than he loved Christ. Now, he was a seminary student. He was a, he was a good guy, really, really kind, loved his wife, it seemed, kids, a bunch of kids, leaves a, a wonderful family. Guys, there is no one above the temptation. No one. And if you think that you are, you're a target. And the bullseye's on your back. Guys, the greatest danger of walking away from Jesus, and Jesus knew this, and this is why he said it in chapter 16. The greatest danger of walking away from Jesus, it's not college professors, it's not the LGBTQ, it's not television, it's not social media, it's not video games, it's not drugs, it's not alcohol. It's being convinced that this temporary life is more valuable than Jesus. That is your greatest danger in this life. And you could say that those things are all part of that, certainly that's true. Your greatest danger in this life, I'll just be honest, it's not loving Jesus enough. It's loving something in this world more than you love Jesus. His point here is that the very best thing, disciples, that you can do, the very best thing that the disciples can do to not fall away is not to try really hard not to sin. It's not to try really hard to be a good person. It's not to try, try, try. It is to cling to Jesus like literally your life depends on it. Church, cling to Jesus. Cling to him. Because no one is above the temptation to fall away from Christ and to go wander off with some 19-year-old that you don't even know 400 miles from the family that you loved your whole life because you are weak, just like I am. It means you pray earnestly that God would keep you from yourself, that you would love Jesus more than you love anything. Church, Christian, do you love Jesus? Be honest. Think about it. Be introspective for a moment. Do you love Jesus more than everything in your life? More than your job, more than your children, more than your parents, more than your spouse. Do you love Jesus more than everything, more than sex, more than your cell phone, more than social media, more than music, more than entertainment? Do you love him more than everything? And if there's something that came to your mind that is competing with him, you're in danger. You are in danger because that thing is what Satan will use to destroy you. These guys were petrified at being put out of the synagogue. That was the closest thing, the most dear thing to their hearts. And Jesus said, The evil one will try to use that to make you fall away from me. Don't let him. Cling to me more than that. Church, love Jesus more than anything. Lastly, look at verse 4. But I've said these things to you. That when their hour comes, in other words, when these persecutions arise, when they go put you out of the synagogue, when the temptation comes, that you may remember, verse 4, that I told them 
to you. In other words, what he's saying is, I am predicting that this occurs so that when it does occur, you will understand that I saw it coming because I am in control. Guys, God is in control. He's sovereign. He is before all things, in all things, through all things. He is above everything. He is sovereign. He's in control. And you have to know, less than 24 hours, these things are about to go down. You have to know that those who hated Jesus, that hated the disciples, that they rejoiced as they re- arrested him, that as they beat him, as they spat on him, as, they, as he breathed uh, his last, you know that they breathed a sigh of relief at his last breath. And they thought to themselves, finally, it is finished victoriously he is dead but what they did not understand is not that he was finished but that they were finished it was finished all right oh the irony as they cheered their own defeat and the defeat of the evil one guys at the cross jesus wasn't vanquished sin was vanquished what seemed to be his defeat was his and our greatest ultimate never-ending victory sin is defeated and jesus is alive That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And how can you love anything more than that? How can you love anything more than Jesus? 2 Corinthians 4, 17. And this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Church, persevere. It's worth it. And when you are tempted, remember that persecution from a believer rejecting world, when it comes, it serves not to discourage and make you feel abandoned or rejected by God, but to affirm and encourage, not your rejection from God, but your acceptance in Christ. Because they hated Jesus, they will hate you. And if they don't hate you, you may not be in Jesus. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your whole life story. But I do know that God is in control of it. I do know what Jesus told us is true. And that is that you will be tempted to fall away. And I know what Jesus said is true. Is that this world makes our souls salivate. It dangles in front of us the things that cause us to love those things more than Jesus. Church, I implore you. Resist. Persevere. And be steadfast. The greatest thing that you could possibly do to remedy that is not to try really hard and try to be a really good person. It's to love Jesus. So will you join me this morning and love Jesus together and ask him to help us by the power of the helper to persevere against the temptation of persecution. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we respond, Lord, we rest in your amazing grace. Father, we love you, and without you, we are nothing. We pray, Father, that you would help us to love you more than anything in this world. That by your grace, you would aid us in that endeavor. Lord, I pray that this morning was maybe a wake-up call. That sin is not something to be coddled with, but something to be terrorized. We must hate it because the world hates us and it hated you first. Lord, if someone in this room is realizing, you know, 
I've been saying I'm wearing this jersey, but I've been playing for the wrong team. I pray, Lord, that you would convict and bring them to their knees. Let today be the day of salvation for some. You can do that. It's by your grace and mercy that anyone may be saved. And I pray that you would put the burden this morning right now on the hearts of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.